Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. Yeah, I don't know what happened to Dara. I'm still here. I'm just oh, are you totally here? on the phone because my... Oh, great. yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm wholly on the phone because my computer has, has died and I don't oh, no. think the computer Ooh. I'm currently on has Zoom, um, but I'll be on for the remainder. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, sorry about your computer. Um <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lynn, Jerusalem Desmus, back with us. Um, and we are going to talk today about homelessness, a classic weeds topic uh, that we've gotten to a few times over the years, uh, but that the dynamics of which have changed somewhat in the wake of the pandemic and, and other problems. And, and Jerusalem, you have been looking into an interesting sort of development on this front that's happening out in Los Angeles, which... Um, you know, is is in the sort of big uh, perpetual housing crisis zone that is Southern California. Um, so can you tell us what's what's going on there in L.A.? Yeah, sure. So um, a few weeks ago, at the end of April, uh, a Los Angeles district court judge essentially ordered the city and county of L.A. Um, to not only put a billion dollars in escrow to be used for homelessness, but also to ensure that um, by mid-October, um, the city and county had to offer shelter to the entire population of Skid Row, which is a neighborhood that has the largest amount of uh, homelessness, homeless folks in the uh um, in the LA area. So it was a major decision and it really caused, uh, obviously a huge kerfuffle. I mean, the, the budget of the city of LA is about $10 billion total. And, um, as they pointed out, uh, you don't just have a billion dollars sitting around <laughs> to put into escrow. Um, the judge ended up amending his order, but there's still a lot, um, going on. It was 110 pages where he really went into, um, the racial, uh, history of uh, discriminatory housing policies, both at the federal level and at the local level that have affected um, Angelino. So it was something that really, sh uh, you know, shook the entire community, but it really laid bare a lot of the issues with how people conceive of homelessness as a problem. So the idea that you could just take everyone in Skid Row and just put them into a housing shelter means that people are thinking about homelessness as a stock rather than a flow. Like there's a fixed number of people that exist currently in homelessness and that you just need to put them somewhere and therefore uh, then you would solve the issue. But, you know, as we know, uh, a majority of folks who are experiencing homelessness, it's not the same amount of folks. There are people who are coming in and out and maybe they're going to a shelter, or they're going to someone's house and they're couch surfing somewhere else and then living in their car or on the streets or and they're unsheltered. Um, but you can't just fix the problem by putting everyone into shelters. And it's also um, brought up a lot of a, a lot of problems with shelters in particular as a solution for the housing crisis. So can we talk a little bit about how that kind of stocks and flows question has shifted during the pandemic? Because on the one hand, there's been, you know, a lot of attention to like the idea of you know, economic collapse and that, you know, a lot of people are kind of extremely vulnerable in ways that they weren't before. But, you know, in addition to there being kind of the federal eviction moratorium and various state eviction moratoria and attempts to like support people staying in their homes, there's also, you know, the 
extent to which this is kind of, as Matt mentioned at the beginning of this episode, an ongoing political problem where even before the pandemic, you know, the presence of large numbers of unhoused people in like cities in Southern California in particular, but also in other cities in the U.S., uh, was seen as a growing problem and one that wasn't being resolved even during the extremely strong economy of that time. Yeah. So in terms of COVID, we don't have really great data on homelessness in general, but especially during COVID, we don't have a full picture. What we do know is um, in L.A., they did do a um, survey in, in the summer of last year and did find a significant increase in homelessness. So we and, you know, our presumptions could go in either direction. Right. Like, obviously, there's massive financial instability for people at the lower end of the income ladder. There's already existing housing insecurity that happened before that that was in place before the pandemic. And so you would expect a lot of folks to potentially be falling into homelessness in this time period. But what we also saw were, as you mentioned, Dara, a lot of these um, policies to keep people in their homes, like the eviction moratorium, which we know, the national eviction moratorium, and also local and state ones um, that we know did have the effect of keeping a lot of people in their homes. So it's it's, an, it's a question right now, like whether um, after the pandemic, what we'll see will ha- actually happen in 2020 and 2021 uh, regarding homelessness. But in terms of like kind of this larger political problem, I think it starts with how we even conceive of a problem of homelessness. If you're kind of a person living in Los Angeles or DC or Seattle, um, and you're like a person who's not experiencing homelessness or hasn't experienced it at all, and you feel relatively financially stable, you see this as a couple of different ways. One is, wow, this is terrible. Why are people living in the street? Why doesn't someone give them a shelter? And secondly, you're like frustrated that, you know, obviously it causes um, problems with sanitation when people don't have access to, especially a lot of the facilities they might have had access to pre-pandemic because a lot of the shops and things are closed. So it becomes a hygienic issue where people don't have toilets or things like that. And also it becomes a criminal issue where you have a large large populations of people who are very vulnerable um, living in these unsheltered locations. And um, then, of course, that also leads to policing problems. And that's one of the big issues, too, that's come up with the order from the Los Angeles District Court judge is because he seems to insinuate at the end of his order that after shelter has been offered to every person in Skid Row, then the city um, and county are generally free to begin uh, enacting ordinances that would have the effect of allowing police to clear out these shelters. And so, I mean, a lot of this is, is is like how we conceive of the problem is really important. But then there's also a bunch of reasons why shelter may not actually be a good answer for a lot of people. If you think about yourself and the idea of like you could have a major financial emergency and then maybe you're not able to pay rent. Maybe you have friends or people that you could stay with um, in the meantime, or you would kind of figure out in your car or you would try to figure out a way for you to be able to retain some kind of control over your life. What shelters ask is actually a lot. Like there are three things that Eric Tars, he's at the National um, Law Institute for Homelessness. I'm sorry, I, I probably said your your organization's name wrong, Eric. But Eric Tars, he's an expert on this. And there are three things he says that people really often talk about. It's ideas of partner, pets, and um, possessions. When you go to a shelter, it's usually sex segregated. So it means you might have to split up with your partner or um, potentially even your children in certain cases or other family members that may depend on you or you may depend on. Uh, there's also, of course, people have really strong connections to their pets. If you don't think that you're going to be homeless for a long time, the idea that you just abandon your dog or some or other animal that you have a lot of connection to is like kind of a big deal. And then, of course, like you also have to abandon a lot of your things. Like shelters often don't let you bring a lot of that stuff in. So when people encounter homelessness on the street and they just ask, like, why doesn't the government just put these people into shelters? Some part of the answer is that a lot of people don't feel like that's the best option for them. Um, and then we also saw, I don't, I'm sure a lot of people remember what happened in Echo Park earlier this year. It's another neighborhood in Los Angeles that was um, forcibly cleared by the state after a homeless encampment came up. Um, there was reports afterwards for people who did actually accept shelters and they, it was not a good solution for them. You're, a lot of times these shelters are far away from your actual work or your social connections or your job uh, potential opportunities and you don't have access to transit that would get you there. And so the idea that you could just take a bunch of people that currently exist, even if it was a stock, and just put them in some shelter far away from their existing community is not a real solution. And so, you know, this is where I, I, I want to note something that that I think is really important and that uh, Mary Cunningham from the Urban Institute told me uh, in an episode we recorded a, a few years ago on, on The Weeds, which is that, you know, she says, and, and I think this is right, that it's important to think of 
the homelessness issue as essentially continuous with other housing policy questions. That the way this presents itself a lot of the time, especially in places where there's a large amount of homelessness, is people develop the question, well, what should we do? about the unhoused, right? Should we be, do we have an obligation to provide them with shelter? Do we need to crack down on their camping and and other unsafe conditions, right? So it's like, how are we going to manage this situation? But there's another question, which is you can look at like New York State and Florida have almost the exact same population. Florida has somewhat more people and a faster growing population. But New York is something like seven times the homelessness of Florida, Right. And that's not because the more enlightened, more left wing state government in Florida (laughs) has um, a much more generous welfare state and is doing way, way more to help people out. Right. It's because the baseline uh, affordability of housing in Florida is so much better. And so with the I'm looking at the 2019 numbers from National Alliance and homelessness. Um, So it's a little out of date. But I mean, I think captures the flavor of the situation in in Florida you're talking about about 7,000 families experiencing homelessness on any given night in 2019. Um, Whereas in New York, you're talking about almost 50,000. So it's a totally different magnitude in terms of, okay, how do we provide services to this population? And the question of why is it that there are sevenfold more people experiencing homelessness in any given time in New York, I think ought to be the, the sort of central focus here. Of course, in all states, you have some people, right? So it's, you know, um, they, they say they found 270 people in the South Dakota homelessness count. And, you know, you ought to help them, right? But that that's such a small group that it's relatively easy to think in sort of expansive terms about how do you help people, whereas Los Angeles is so... Um, it's swamped, essentially, right? There's nothing, I don't want to say there's nothing you can do. Obviously, any situation can be managed better or can be managed worse. But you're dealing with such incredible housing affordability difficulties that it's really challenging to come up with anything that, you know, that's going to be satisfactory to, you know, that's going to treat people well, but also address like any city's desire to have a sort of safe, orderly environment. And that once you're in the conversation, like, what do we do about all these people who don't have a home? You're sort of like you're you're in you're in the failure mode there already. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things, too, where people, I think, try to put systemic um, solutions as something that is like a slow solution. And so, like, of course, there needs to be a faster way to deal with this problem. But, you know, the fundamental problem, and I think we've just kind of danced around this a little bit here, is like there's just not enough affordable housing or even housing in general in places like Los Angeles, Seattle, um, San Francisco, D.C., other places that are experiencing this rise in homelessness. And you know, you have voters in L.A. in 2016 approve a ballot measure, Prop Triple H, uh, which was going to essentially they want to create uh, 10,000 units um, over uh, 10 years. And basically by January of 2020, like four years later, uh, you only have one unit opened for ready for occupancy. And that's like 62 units available. And so part of the issue is that uh, people are trying to figure out these long-term solutions in a way that's like without having to deal with the fundamental problem that there are existing regulations that are stopping enough housing from being built and are runarounds, whether it's shelters or the state should provide, you know, some kind of should be, try to be, try to build these ho- affordable housing or uh, subsidize these affordable housing um, developments is just too slow. But at the same time that these governments are doing this, <laughs> LA is also opposing bills uh, that would actually increase density. I mean, right now you have city council members referring to a bill that would allow small to medium-sized apartment buildings to be built near transit as, quote, chainsawing neighborhoods. And like Garcetti saying that it, you shouldn't change single-family-only zoning because apartments, quote, wouldn't look right. And so you have these weird policies where everyone's conceiving of homelessness in one sphere, like these are shelter problems or issues of like maybe providing some extra money to folks. So Essentially, there's this problem where people conceive of homelessness as a separate, as, like you said, Matt, as separate from housing policy. So you have all of these pronouncements being made by city officials in L.A. and you know across the country even about homelessness being a scourge, about it being a problem of of justice and also just not enough investment. Um, and then you know they're talking very clearly in stark terms about how important it is to invest in resources for homeless people. But then the fundamental problem is in the other same breath they are 
opposing so many policies that would actually make it possible for there to be more homes built. And this isn't just something where, you know, people are opposing, you know, market rate or luxury units, as they call them. This is also a problem where even after Proposition Triple H, which passed with like, I think, 75 percent of the vote, you still have affordable housing advocates telling me that, they're having to do all of this work to convince people to allow any of these projects to be built in their neighborhoods. So, you know, it, there's this clear disconnect that we're talking about here where people refuse to think about homelessness as a housing, as a subset of the housing policy problem and just its own thing that we can solve without dealing with a larger issue. And also where, where, where this goes, right? So in, in D.C., we had a move, you know, that the mayor initiated and the city council approved uh, to create new sort of smaller homeless shelters and distribute them in different parts of the city to be, I don't know, fair and avoid that sort of L.A. skid row phenomenon mm-hmm. where, where it's where it's concentrated. And, you know, so, of course, uh, there's one story that I like, you know, there was one that was going up uh, somewhere in, in Ward 3, which is the sort of um, richest, whitest part of of the city, there was going to be, um, I don't know, some some number of units there. And the local advisory neighborhood commission uh, had a lawsuit, right? And the lawsuit is saying, well, it's too big. The uh, This was supposed to be family uh, homeless shelter. So it had like a playground structure for children. And there were lights at the playground and the lights were too bright. And, you know, it's going through different things of design review. And Therese Fergo, who's uh, the one of the the litigants in the suit trying to stop it. You know, she says, let me be clear. Residents in Ward 3 have never been against having a homeless shelter in its community. Quite the contrary. We're just as compassionate and welcoming as any good citizen should be. What we're fighting is the ill-advised location of having a shelter built inside a police station premise and the abusive process D.C. Council is conducting, which are not reflecting our democratic society. Uh, But that's how it goes, right? So it's like you can pass the ballot initiative to fund the shelters, the city council, can appropriate money to build more shelters. But as long as you have a planning paradigm where each thing needs to go through essentially like locally based litigation and and planning, you will always have this. Because I mean, of course, like they're not wrong. Like in some sense, you would of course rather not have a lit playground at night directly adjacent to your house unless you have small kids yourself you know it's a it's a minor nuisance but like the city has decided that there should be places i mean it's also a nuisance to have people camping right like it's better to have them in shelter and everyone like in dc there was a broad consensus in la there was a broad consensus like there should be more shelters but what there isn't is a consensus in favor of aligning the process for building things with the goal of actually getting those shelters built so you don't have it, right? And then everyone's sitting around and you essentially end up debating a policing issue because it becomes the, you know, the solution of last resort. Yeah. And and one thing to to totally understand is that there are obviously always going to be a subset of the population that will require some sort of government help in order to afford housing. Um, and there are going to be places in the country that are more expensive than other places. But the question is, like, A, can we reduce the number of people who are on the verge of losing their homes because of they encounter a single financial emergency? And what we're seeing is that even wealthier individuals are paying up to like 30 or even more than that percentage of their income on rent. And those aren't people who are I mean, these don't have to be always people who are um, you know on the verge of homelessness or anything like that. But if you have you know young college graduates who are earning like ninety thousand dollars a year in the Bay Area on the verge of like spending like fifty percent of their income on rent, you know that is a sign that the rest of the housing market is not providing enough homes for other people and. I think the big thing here, too, is we look at the successes of uh, in, in helping homeless folks. I mean, the HUD-VASH program, which is a program that seeks to service uh, veteran and deal with veteran homelessness, saw between, I think, 2010 and 2019, a decrease in 50 percent in veteran homelessness. And they didn't like come up with some like insane new, like cool strategy to like deal with the problem. They like gave homeless veterans money and then they were able to use that money to purchase shelter. And then for some folks who were experiencing chronic issues, like whether it has to do with their disability or other things, they were um, given services while 
helping them find a home. And this is the kind of thing um, that homeless advocates describe as a housing first strategy. Um, this idea that you just need to put someone in a house and give them kind of the ability to have a permanent housing solution before you can ask them to like figure out a job or like other kinds of things that they're dealing with. Because I mean, I don't know about you all, but like I imagine like being on the street and being asked to like fill out a job application would not be a situation that I would be <laughs> a very good interviewee in or anything like that. So I, I think that like there's this weird conception also, even though people don't say this, like you do see it in, in many different programs that are designed where we expect people who are literally unsheltered to figure out a bunch of other things that are difficult to figure out, even if you have a house, like getting a job or like um, dealing with an addiction or anything like that. There's also, I mean, going back to, you know, Los Angeles in particular, the kind of process question here, right, where, you know, on the one hand, Matt's talking about kind of all the veto points that are involved and all the constituencies that have to be gotten on board. And then on the other hand, you have this judge saying the government has failed so utterly to provide this that I'm going to, like, mandate a specific amount of money that must be set aside and set particular dates that, you know, things must must comply by, which is really far into the policymaking process for us to consider the judicial branch to be. And like, Jerusalem, can you talk a little bit about how how that kind of has come about and whether that seems like, you know, is that the necessary workaround to deal with the difference between the politics of this this issue and like the available policy solutions? Or how is that working out? Yeah. So, um, that part was obviously, it was very controversial. It's, um, you know, it, this, the suit is being appealed to the Ninth Circuit. Um, they are also working with the plaintiffs to figure out a settlement potentially without having to do this. But there is this sense that it has gone on so far. And the decision is 110 pages of the judge going from literally the 1920s and discussing all of the discriminatory housing policies that led to the point where you have, um, you know, a housing crisis and homelessness at like, you know, the brink of collapse in certain areas. So the issue is that the judge then takes this you know, 100 year history and applies a solution that someone said, like, it was like a doctor that gets a diagnosis right and the treatment exactly wrong. And he tags things like exclusionary zoning as being an issue and other um, things as, as being part of the problem. But then the solution is entirely based on temporary shelters. And then at that point, essentially policing anyone who chooses not to uh, take advantage of a temporary shelter um, out of being able to live in, in those places. And I think, again, this is the same problem of conceiving of of homelessness as a separate problem from the housing crisis, because it's very clear to me that, you know, this judge is looking at this problem from the perception of, you know, you're an average person looking at a homelessness crisis and you're just like, someone needs to shelter these people. But uh, if you don't conceive of it as being part of the housing crisis, you don't actually solve the root cause of the problem. But the actual bigger problem here, too, is that, like, there isn't actually a simple answer here to make sure that you have a bunch of people not living unsheltered. Like, it's going to take a long time before you are able to make sure people are financially solvent and there's enough housing available for them to uh, take advantage of, even if they're receiving government help through um, housing voucher programs or anything like that. And because that seems like a very like not OK response, uh, people then turn to um, suboptimal uh, responses that seem more like immediate action, even if they're not actually going to solve the problem. But, you know, one thing that's that's worth mentioning here, you, you know, we've been talking about housing and, and you, you know, uh, you need to build more things. But there was also this big sort of move in the United States a couple generations ago to sort of get rid of what was considered substandard accommodations. You used to have people in America living in apartment buildings where you had to share a bathroom with other families. You used to have people living in, you know, single resident occupancy or just like a bed in a, in a tiny room, that kind of thing. You had some people living even in these kind of like cage hotels, um, flop houses. Um, and if you look, you know, there, there was a, a, an old movie about D.C., about like an alien uh, comes to D.C. in in the 1950s. And he appears in Columbia Heights and he immediately uh, finds himself in a rooming house, uh, which was where single men uh, used to what live. What is the name of this movie? 1951 sci-fi movie. It's called The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, and Klaatu is a, is a level-headed extraterrestrial emissary. He escapes captivity at the Reed Army Medical Center in D.C. And he sort of wanders down uh, Georgia Avenue. And then he goes into a boarding house at 14th Street and Harvard Street in 
Columbia Heights. And this was always striking to me because I, I used to live at 14th Street and Harvard Street in Columbia Heights. Um, and so his boarding house is where the National Urban League's uh, headquarters is right now. Uh, but at the time in, in the movie, you know, it was just um, this was the kind of place single men moving to a big city uh, would live in the early 50s. And it's, it's just one room. Right. No facilities, no kitchen, no nothing like that. And it's just built to be cheap, 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 cheap. And one reason that most people don't live in the kind of accommodations that were typical in the early 1950s is that America is much wealthier than it used to be. So it's natural. Right. We have bigger houses than we used to. We have more bathrooms. We don't want to share kitchens with other people. That makes perfect sense. But some people are quite poor. Right. And what we have done, though, is used regulations to eliminate what used to be the cheapest forms of housing in the country. And it's meant to be a sort of nice thing. We've gotten rid of these tenements, these bad substandard dwellings. But instead, what we have is people sleeping rough on the streets or looking for shelter beds. And then you're under the thumb of, you know, the people who run the shelters, right? Versus, you know, renting a room in a flop house or a boarding house or an SRO is not great, but it's still your place, right? And you can keep your possessions in there or, or whatever else you, you want. Um, and, you know, uh, Christopher Jenks is the person I, I heard about this from uh, way back when, when I was in school. And I mean, I think it's very true, right? Like, it, w- it was an interesting theory that if we eliminated all the substandard housing, the upshot would be that everybody lived in better housing. <laughs> but we're, we're like 50 years into this experiment. And it's like demonstrably not the case. We have a lawsuit in Los Angeles about whether the city has an affirmative obligation to provide sort of crummy shelter to people. Um, but it used to be that like this, this existed in the marketplace. Um, yeah. And Skid Row, the neighborhood that we're talking about, used to have tons of single room occupancy hotels. And it's not like a coincidence that the place where most of those are essentially eliminated is now the site of a large open air homelessness encampment. Right. And so, you know, I mean, it's just an important question of like, what are we like, what are we doing here exactly? Um, Where, you know, I I feel like there's an incredible amount of status quo bias um, in the kind of thinking about these things where because the SROs are all gone, because the rooming houses and flop houses are gone, everyone's like, well, like, what are you going to do? We need to dichotomously have, you know, one group of thousands of people on the street and then another much smaller group we're going to provide enough assistance to to get into like a modern 2020 style house but like the gap between a tent and a house like it's so vast right there's such a and we know like around the world most countries are much much poorer than the united states of america and that doesn't mean everyone is sleeping on the streets it means they're sleeping in smaller houses yeah and also, it feels like uh, there's this weird sense that it's more inhumane to build a house that or build a, a residency that is not, you know, up to what, you know, a middle class or upper middle class person would like to live in. But just like I feel like just put yourself in the shoes of someone who's dealt with a financial emergency. Would you prefer uh, there's a one in 100 chance that you get a nice like $300,000 apartment condo in a place that you can't pick or that there are tons of places where you can just like put your head down for the night and you have you own the key to the room and you're able to rent that space and it's just yours and you can leave your stuff there and like your kids can be safe there and everything and then you can like figure it out from there and I just feel like there's a sense where um, this concept of like who is allowed to have choice or who's allowed to have options and exercise that level of agency like the sense that like homeless folks should just be corralled into wherever a shelter can exist versus we should give them the resources. You know, the HUD-BASH program, one of the things they do is provide up to $4,000 in case some people just need, you know, assistance with a down payment or just a little bit of money to get back onto their feet so they can continue living their lives. And I think it's like over 60% of people are not chronically homeless individuals and are, you know, taking advantage of a shelter for a temporary amount of time. And giving people the agency to like figure out a choice and then go from there is not just something about like respecting that individual's like dignity or anything like that. It's also recognition that like an individual person has different social and also economic 
networks and that the state is not going to be able to figure out where to place people optimally to take advantage of them. If you're a person who you know you have four or five friends who might be able to help you get temporary work in different places, you're the one who knows where those people are and how to contact them and where to live that's closest to take advantage of those employment opportunities. Or, um, you know, you have a friend who might be able to take you in or where that person is. Like the state has no ability to figure that kind of stuff out. And so there's this weird sense where, um, you know, we should that we should be still figuring out these kind of uh, these 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 permanent housing solutions through this process that doesn't take into account the fact that when people are picking houses, they have a ton of different preferences that actually enhance economic growth um, when you allow them to execute those preferences rather than just like choosing for them. I don't know anyone who would allow the government to decide where they were going to live next. And we we should not be doing that with, with people who are uh, lower income either. Let's take a break. And then I, w- I want to talk about another city that's been been shifting its policies recently. Intrigue. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so the, the last time uh, we we wheezed about homelessness was in Austin, Texas, at Texas Tribune Fest 2019, I believe. Um, in, in the fall there, before the, the pandemic, Dara was there with me um, and, and the late, great Jane Coaston. Um, Austin, I, I've been thinking about this for two reasons. One is because Austin is one of the only places that I went uh, during the pandemic year. And the other is that at the time, we were discussing the controversy over an Austin City Council initiative which had repealed the laws against sort of camping in public parks. And this had become a big issue in Texas, where um, the governor, Greg Abbott, and to an extent, the Trump administration were saying, like, Austin, like, this shows, you know, you can't let the left run things. Um, And so, you know, the Austin City Council and Austin City government stood strong against this backlash, against their sort of camping policies. Um, But a ballot initiative uh, was placed on the ballot this April. Um, You know, the council was like, no, we're not going to do this. And in a, a city that voted over 70% for, for Joe Biden, um, this decriminalization was repealed. Uh, people really didn't like it. I mean, I'll say, as someone who'd been making biannual visits to Austin for a while, um, it had a noticeable impact on, on the city, you know, uh, especially if you were downtown or, you know, involved in, in the businesses there. Um, and it was just this idea uh, that you were going to address homelessness by just sort of letting people uh, pitch their tents wherever uh, was very unpopular. Um, you know, if it's if it's too left wing for Austin, you're not going to find a lot of places for it. <laughs> and it was interesting to me. I saw some like, you know, 
backlash on Twitter. You know, I saw people saying, oh, like, I can't believe um, there was so much, uh, you, you know, this cruelty and so forth. And I looked up, I just like, I saw a, that a couple people who disapproved of the Austin voters, like themselves lived in cities where this is not allowed. Because it's it's not allowed most places. And I, I mean, I sympathize. I, I did not, I never liked the sort of effort to turn this into a culture war wedge issue. Um, but it seems so clearly like an unsustainable solution for a place like Austin or Seattle or Los Angeles or whatever else to say, well, we're going to turn public space into this kind of open air. I mean, I don't want to call it a shelter exactly, um, but like that's not what it's for. And it doesn't seem like, I mean, it doesn't work politically. Um, it, it's not really that humane to people, I think. Um, and, you know, they're just like, there, there has to be some kind of bigger um, rethink of what you're going to do. Right. I mean, especially because if you think about this as like a question of what is going to actually fix the problem rather than, you know, purely a punitive expression, like maybe this is not going to be so much of an issue a year from now when the economic consequences of the pandemic are, you know, likely still going to be a problem for like the most disadvantaged, but the epidemiological consequences, you know, hopefully will not be as widespread in the U.S. But like right now, what you're essentially doing is creating a mechanism to take people from living outdoors to congregate housing indoors, which is not exactly an epidemiologically solid solution. And it's also unlikely to work, right? Because as there's pressure to keep like prison and jail populations minimized, uh, until the virus is fully under control, a lot of people are going to end up getting released anyway. So there's not, it's not at all clear what the policy mechanism is to take this from like a declaration of we don't like it to an actual solution to the problem. Yeah. And I mean, I think just kind of when we talk about, you know, this kind of stuff, these open air um, encampments are not humane or they don't feel like uh, a good way to live. I, you know, I'm not going to come out, I think, in favor of, of this idea. But <laughs> Kevin Drum had this really interesting blog post about um, permitting tent encampments and just, you know, providing toilets, running water, establishing minimal police patrols to make sure people can stay safe and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, the you know the, the reason why I think some of these ideas are worth merit is that a lot of the things that people are saying about homeless encampments are the same things they said about things like single room occupancy hotels and other you know considered more deleterious like forms of of housing for lower income folks and you know there are two separate problems here one is insufficient housing and the second is like poverty and like you're not going to solve a poverty problem in America in like, you know, the next year or by October as this judge, I guess, is trying to get the city of LA to do. And, you know, if you if you admit the premise that there's going to be poverty, then you also have to admit there are going to be solutions here that are suboptimal for how the average American might want to live. And, you know, I, I don't think I think the issue is there's a lot of like no's being said, like there's no to these um, homeless encampments that are that are uh, that are legal. There's no's to these single room occupancy hotels. There's no to affordable housing. There's even no to homeless shelters being built in certain parts of these um, high cost cities. And so there is clearly a disconnect between the people who are saying things and voting for things like um, affordable housing measures and, uh, you know, and uh, talking about how homelessness is their number one priority. And the disconnect is between that uh, sentiment and then the actual policy responses that they're willing to deal with because the revealed preferences of people living in these major cities with political power um, is clearly pro-homelessness because you cannot live in a city and say things like I'm opposed to housing in my uh, more housing in my area and I'm opposed to um, this homeless shelter being built here because it's near a school or I'm opposed to um, all various types of housing that are being proposed and then say also that the government needs to fix this problem. Unless you are insinuating the idea the government should forcibly remove people off the streets and then forcibly keep them and contained in a, a homeless shelter, which um, is just jail, actually. Yeah. And, you know, I, what's you were you were saying, you know, it's kind of like no to, to everything. And I think it's, you know, it's again, it's telling that the places where the problem of homelessness presents itself most severely are not the like stingiest places in America. Yeah. They're just the places where the housing is most 
expensive, right? And the reason this became a salient issue in Austin is that Austin has become much more expensive, much more expensive than other cities in Texas. And so it wound up uh, both presenting itself on the on the political agenda and being a novel issue, you know, whereas New York, Los Angeles have, for better or worse, sort of accommodated homelessness for, for a long time. Um, and this is, you know, this is a, a a housing policy question. There are real limits, not just on constructing shelters or, you know, we were talking about SROs, substandard housing, but just constructing market rate apartment buildings that would relieve some of the pressure on the older housing stock. And Austin also has these various rules. You know, there's a limit to how many unrelated adults can live in a house together. And that's because they want to prevent private uh, people from taking their single family homes and sort of turning them into de facto dorms Mm. uh, for college students. But that would also be a good way to address uh, low income people's housing needs. And to be clear, a lot of those like ordinances are really anti-tenant in a lot of ways and anti-renter. Like I lived in Williamsburg, Virginia when I went to college and they had one of these laws. I don't remember what it was. I think like three people were not allowed to live unrelated in the same dwelling. And of course, like college kids just did it anyway. And what that ends up meaning is that you can't complain to your landlord about literally anything because then they could be like, I could evict you at any moment because you have five or six people living in this like, you know, five bedroom house uh, that clearly could house all these people without any problem. And so, you know, you couldn't complain about things that are within the landlord's required duties to perform in your lease out of fear of eviction. And so I think some of the things here, too, is like, who are these policies built for? Because the language of a lot of the proponents of these policies is that you know, it's pro-family, it's pro-people um, uh, who want to keep their neighborhood safe, all those kind of things. But like, you know, not allowing five or six people to live in a house together, it's probably anti a lot of um, people who are within the same community and are trying to house one another and, you know, allow for some crowding so people don't end up on the street. And so it, it's, a, it's a real big problem there because people are conceiving of the problem as as uh, as very different from where the solutions there they want are. Right. So you get this like, no, it's like you can't build more. No, you can't subdivide the existing things. No, you can't crowd more people in. No, you can't go out on the street. No, you can't build new shelters. Um, and it's like you've got to do something, right? And, and you know, the pandemic has made this uh, particularly salient in certain ways. I mean, Dara was talking about the special public health concerns, uh, dealing with, with shelters, things like that. But it's it's striking that homelessness was rising in the United States in 2018, 2019, 2020, um, at a time when the economy was doing well. Uh, because, you know, when there's economic growth, right, I mean, incomes rise, but some people do worse than average. Um, that's that's life um, in, in <laughs> that, you know, that's it, averages. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's how averages work. Right. And if you create a situation where, you know, like the rising tide, you know, even if it does lift all the boats, it doesn't lift them all the exact same amount. Um, and of course, in reality, it doesn't actually lift all of them. And if the price of stuff, of housing in particular, just goes up, 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 um, this is where you have people sort of pushed. And now we have construction costs rising and, and other things. And, and I'm worried that this is going to be a huge issue as we step out of recovery with just scarcer housing supply everywhere in the country. And, you know, that's that's where homelessness comes from fundamentally. And there's this really big concern, too, right now during the pandemic, like uh, people are the the idea of housing prices going too high is is really salient for folks. Like it's like been a Google trend, like way up. People can go check it out. But like housing prices and is there going to be a bubble? When is it going to crash? Is super salient. And right now people are searching for like the villain in the story. Like, who is it? Like, is it these like major private equity firms or are these institutional investors that are buying up all these homes? Like, is this the problem here? And the fundamental answer is like something that's like extremely unsatisfying for people. Like it's unsatisfying to say that there are all these bureaucratic rules in your hometown, many of which you might personally benefit from or or would want to have in place when you own a home um, that are causing this problem. And I do think there's a problem here where, um, you know, I don't think this is anyone in particular's fault, but like you don't have the clear articulation of the problem uh, made to people. And so, you know, things like this order from the judge seem eminently reasonable at first glance. And, you know, it's very clear that, you know, he's very fed up, as most people are, with the lack of concrete successes by the L.A. city government and county government. But, you know, 
it seems eminently reasonable to say just put these people in homes. Uh, it would only cost like, you know, $10 billion total in America to house like most of the people who are living um, unsheltered. But that ignores the fundamental reality of what the housing crisis looks like. And I also think that it, it intersects with a lot of really weird political dynamics at the local level that, you know, people don't want to engage in because it's politically unpopular. So I, I think that the, the reality is what we're facing here is just like continued open air homelessness. Um, and, and one fact that I do want to put out there is that this is a modern phenomenon here. Other than like the Great Depression, this idea of like people living unhoused um, in these large tent cities is just not a normal American thing. And it's become like a facet of life in these major cities, but it's not normal and it's not something that people dealt with, even when, you know, as Matt mentioned, people were a lot poorer in like the 1950s and 60s. Like we are a lot wealthier now. And um, it's also not really fully just about resource allocation. Like New York City spends so much money on homelessness prevention programs. But, you know, that that's that's really the problem here is that until we get a clear articulation from political leaders that to solve the homelessness problem means you need to relinquish control at the local level of every single veto power over every single project. I don't think this is a is a problem that's going to be saved. There's just going to be mounting frustration and then legal orders like from this judge, which, um, you know, contain a lot of righteous anger and, you know, correct history, but not really the, the, the correct solutions for, for the problem. You know, thinking about this, it's a failure to make the, the problem clear to people does strike me as really important for exactly the reason that, that you, you know, kind of, you know, mentioned in passing, which is that there are a lot of politically empowered people who are very sensitive to the current state of the housing market and are very concerned about like being able to, you know, if they are looking to move, being able to move in, you know, without potentially losing massive amounts of money in the long run, if they want to buy, uh, who are concerned about the, uh, you know, the dwellings that they rent getting put on the market and therefore, you know, losing the, the temporary housing they have, like, it's not like housing is a, an issue of low salience to a lot of middle and upper class Americans right now. And, you know, it, you, it would seem like a fairly intuitive thing to say the housing shortage that is causing your that is causing your situ housing situation to seem precarious to you or to seem uncertain to you is exactly the same reason that we can't just like, you know, magic some homes to put unhoused people in. But the fact that that connection isn't happening, it is instead, as you mentioned, looking for people to blame and people who are, you know, supposedly hoarding this empty housing stock is creating a real, I mean, I would say failure of political imagination and I would say failure of solidarity, but like, it, I don't know exactly where the failure lies, but it's definitely, when you put it in those terms, it should be very easy to understand homelessness as a housing issue. And instead, we have these two totally separate debates going on. And I think that's a, like, a really interesting point to bring up here is that, you know, we had we have a lot of people, like you said, Dara, in this crisis who have gotten into either either have bought a home for the first time as they're taking advantage of low mortgage rates or, you know, between September 2019 and September 2020, homeowners accumulated like a trillion dollars in additional home equity. And there's a couple ways this could play out. Um, one is the incoming new first time homeowners are, are um, you know, a lot of them are millennials. These are people who lived in apartments. Maybe they're less hostile to multifamily housing. And so you have lower, um, you know, you have more people who are willing to say, like, you know, I'm fine with a, a, a you know, a multiplex going up near me or I'm OK with these kinds of changes. Or you have potentially this countervailing force taking hold where people now expect that their house um, uh, house value appreciation has to go up a ton for them to feel like they made a good investment and they'll become even more sensitive to potential changes in their community. Um, you know, people are, you know, in so many places paying uh, way more than they expected to when they were buying their first home. Home, they're waiving, uh, you know, uh, inspection costs, all these kinds of things. And that could turn into a real resentment if prices stop appreciating or even come down a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's really going to be interesting to see like how whether people become these kind of neighborhood defenders or they will stay true to the fact that, you know, they experience good lives in apartment buildings. And, uh, you know, they have friends who still live in multifamily uh, developments. And uh, it, it remains to be seen how there will be response. But I think the last year's housing market is going to change a lot of things about how people engage with the housing policy process at the local level. Okay. Do we take a break and talk about some Italian administrative data? Let's do it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? 
Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Okay, uh, so we have today Career Spillovers in Internal Labor Markets by Nicola Bianchi, Giulia Bovini, Jin Lee, Matteo Paradisi, and Michael Powell. Um, so this is interesting. It's administrative data from Italy rather than from a Nordic country. Um, and so they are looking at two things. One is that they have um, administrative data on the Italian private sector workers. And they also have a 2011 Italian pension reform that tightened eligibility criteria for, um, I guess, the Italian version of sort of social security. So there were these big heterogeneous changes in when people plan to retire. So you can look at sort of what happens in companies where people in key positions had to delay their retirement versus in other companies. Um, and they show, they say, they find evidence of spillover patterns consistent with older workers blocking the careers of their younger colleagues, but only in firms with limited promotion opportunities. Um, so, you know, I mean, this is pretty intuitive, right? There's a certain number of companies where there's not a lot of opportunities for promotion. And it seems like when older workers retire, that's when the opportunity sort of opens up. And so, you know, encouraging older workers to retire uh, later could block the career path for sort of younger workers. Um, you know, I, I don't know exactly how um, generalizable this is. Uh, the Italian labor market and, and business world has a lot of features that are different from the United States. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that, especially if I think about people I know who work at sort of um, smaller nonprofits, they're just not going to experience growth right? Like it's not, it's not built into the business model. You have this sort of situation where like you could be doing a good job, but like, what are you going to do? Every once in a while, a senior person leaves, but unless they do, there's just sort of nothing there. And that's very different from the experience at um, like a startup that is trying to grow and add people and creates lots and lots of opportunities. Yeah. And I think it really depends on, I mean, they go into this in the paper, the type of industry that you're in. So if like you're like an individual, right? And this um, reform comes into effect and you realize that a bunch of people who you thought were going to retire and you could eventually get promoted in their slot end up staying. But, you know, you're a high value individual. You have a lot of human capital. Like the general theories of labor market economics would say that you should just go take your um, take your talents elsewhere and bid go bid um, on a job in another firm where, you know, there might they might see your value um, more than your current firm does. But there's a lot of obviously transactions costs and like, you know, there's a lot of things in the way of you just behaving that fluidly in your own life. Um, a, like there are personal reasons, like you may like like your workplace, it might be close to your home, like there are a lot of reasons there. But one thing that they focus on in the paper is this idea of uh, 
they think a lot of firms in Italy are looking at years of service as a promotional um, tool. So like, you know, the longer you've been there, seniority that you get is like how you earn your promotions, not just in, you know, in, in a lot of different firms. So if you're like another individual, it's hard for you to go just translate your own skills and like go bid on another job in, in another firm because you've lost years that you've already built up at that company. And so I think that was like an interesting point there about like how companies uh, benefit from this kind of seniority level, because and you, what you, they don't observe in the paper is after this reform goes into effect, a bunch of people don't just quit and go get new jobs. And that indicates to me that they end up, a lot of these firms end up having maybe the best of both worlds here where they get to keep a lot of their institutional knowledge and memory in these older employees who, um, you know, might might be, you know, might be better or maybe in some cases are worse because they're not uh, adapting to new trends or whatever. But a lot of times might be better. And also they don't lose a lot of their younger employees because they don't have the ability to move to a different um, firm. Jerusalem, that is a really good point. And I actually, uh, when, you know, tracking down this paper, stumbled on something that really illuminated the paper for me in a way that I hadn't uh, anticipated, which is that there's another NBER working paper published a few months ago using this exact same Italian pension reform to observe that companies were able to increase their firm value by retaining highly experienced workers, which is like the exact converse of what we're talking about here. And it was useful because like there's no talk about firm value in this paper. This paper isn't concerned with that. It's concerned with like what this means for individual workers. That's the unit of analysis. And that's not really, you know, Generally, the economics of firms assumes that higher value for the firm will result in higher value for the employees. And so, or, you know, it'll at least like disperse down to them in other ways. So there isn't, you know, it, it, this, this is the outlier here in the, you know, kind of counterfactual paper is, is the norm. But it does make me wonder what other issues like this are being overlooked when we assume that you know, it's always in the best interest of the employees for the firm to retain its highest value employees and to be able to, you know, to to reduce those. It's, it's not just a matter of like obviously reducing those employees ability to go elsewhere. I think it's pretty intuitive that that's not going to be good for individual employees, but that even things that increase the value of the firm overall, if that value can't be distributed to employees because the potential for growth isn't there, that's going to have very real consequences for exactly the kind of employees who aren't already being valued by the firm. Yeah. I promise I didn't read that paper. That was, that was all me. (laughs) Um, The other, the other thing I thought that was interesting too, it's like my original thought when reading this paper, um, the abstract uh, was just like, Oh, like, you know, it feels like it's just kind of also a, just a payroll shock, right? Like, you know, if you have a bunch of people who all of a sudden were supposed to retire, but now we're not, and like you have to deal with the fact that you have more people over the coming years um, that are intending to stay at your firm, that's just like more people on your payroll that you have to deal with that kind of like incoming shock. But what the, the paper's authors um, did look into this and they found that the places where people chose not to retire when they otherwise would have or extended their time at the company where they probably otherwise wouldn't have are significant to where um, promotions and uh, lower uh, wage growth actually are concentrated. So like if you were in, you know, HR department and someone chose not to retire, it affected people downstream stream of that. It wasn't just in general, the company had to deal with payroll increases and then made layoffs based on what who was the most efficient. And so that seems to be really inefficient for the companies that they're not able to direct their resources in the appropriate places where they might find the most value after they have this kind of payroll shock. They are actually just uh, forced to deal with like whoever ended up not retiring, um, maybe constraining the um, uh, employment uh, opportunities people below. My understanding is that like Italian labor laws are like really, really strong. Um, they mentioned something like that in the paper, um, but I haven't personally looked into it. Um, and if that's the case, it might be hard for them to fire people that were intending on retiring anyway. Uh, so so that was an interesting part of the paper as well. You know, I mean, to me, I, I, I just thinking about this paper, uh, you know, thought less about the 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 pensions than about the structure of the Italian economy, which compared to the United States has a lot of family companies um, and a lot of smaller businesses and a lot of the kinds of things that I think we often sort of like value. It's easy to feel sentimental about like family businesses and small businesses as opposed to like big faceless, nameless corporations. Uh, but the fact that like 
upward mobility in the workplace is so highly sensitive to public sector pension decisions in Italy. I mean, it, it shows there's a kind of like a like a, a dark side to that, right? Like a nice thing about like a giant corporation with like millions of employees and tens of thousands of management roles is that it's like there's always something opening up for somebody. Right. That those are actually more open, more sort of accessible modes of organizing uh, the workplace and, and the economy. Um, and I think that you actually see that. I mean, this is something I, I wrote about uh, years ago, but like, you know, at like giant big box retail chains, frontline workers can get promoted into management positions because there's these intermediary rungs. Uh, but at family businesses, it's like, you know, when when mom and pop retire, like their random cousin uh, winds up taking over the business, not people who actually work there and, and learn the trade. That actually, um, funnily enough, brings up like this kind of separate ideas I've been thinking about, about the ways in which uh, um, big businesses in some ways are, are much better for workers than like these smaller family run operations, even though they're more politically, um, you know, uh, attractive to people and they sound nice and like pastoral. But like even just beyond this idea that like someone's cousin just ends up getting it because people are uncomfortable with like saying no, even if they're not that qualified. So it's bad for the firm in general. But also, like, there's just a bunch of other ways where like small businesses end up like abusing employees or like not providing uh, a labor market protections that like larger companies are forced to, um, not out of their goodness of their hearts, but because a it's easier to achieve these things at scale, and b it's easier for like labor lawyers or for employment you know uh, activists and stuff to uh, monitor what's happening at large companies and what is easier than to monitor what's happening at every single like pizza shop in Connecticut. So. You know, I have like a lot of friends who like worked in, uh, you know, uh, these small family owned companies when they were or family owned businesses when they were they were young and they report all these different things happening, whether it's from wage theft or pressure to um, work longer um, hours than you're being paid for or, uh, you know, even harassment in a lot of different cases. And I this is separate from this paper specifically, but it's just a really interesting to think about the ways in which bigger businesses are easier to both regulate and also to to exist in as a worker um, than, than small companies. The the kind of romanticization of small business needs to be understood in, in like in a question of what is the goal here, right? Like what is small business for? And yes, you know, there is definitely an aesthetic component to it. There's definitely an ideological, like, uh, you know, the idea of being able to be your own boss and being able to have a successful and comfortable life that way is ideologically important in America in a way it is probably not in Italy. But the, you know, the other argument there is that if you have a path to, you know, starting and operating a small business, that that is a way of entry into the middle class for you. It's not like, you know, that not every entrepreneur needs to be like a ginormous billionaire, but that that is a way for someone to ensure that they have a moderately stable life. Whereas if they are, you know, employed by larger companies that are constantly merging and restructuring and laying people off, or even where the kind of paths to advancement are uh, not certain, right? Where it's, you know, wh whether that's a matter of, well, it's a meritocracy and you can't be sure that you're the meritocrat, or there's a matter of internal politics that you may or may not ever be willing to grasp. Like the idea that it's a lot easier to be sure that you're going to remain your own boss and be able to retain an income stream if you are, you know, starting or running a small business can seem very attractive in that regard. So I'm thinking about that in context of, you know, what we were discussing earlier in terms of Italian firms' own promotion practices. Like, it might actually be that the most stable equilibrium here in terms of can you predict that you're going to have a career advancement, that you're going to have income growth, is to have the... And like, this is, this is you know, regardless of what's good for the firm, what's good for the economy, et cetera. But just from the individual worker's perspective, maybe the answer is that you aren't subject to the whims of whoever runs the family business after the current generation retires, but you do have the benefit of the Italian firm norm of seniority where like you can count how likely you are to get a promotion based on how long you've been with the company and there's an incentive to staying there. Whereas in the US we don't have we have neither the, you know, large small firm employment, uh, nor do we have the expectation that if you're in a large firm, you'll know that you that your amount of importance and income is going to increase over time based on a fairly predictable measure. 
Yeah, that, that brings up like this idea of like, especially from the firm's perspective, like what happens, um, like what what's actually preferable for them. And you know, there is this, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, this idea of like hanging on to your more, um, you know, experienced workers, but there's also this secondary aspect of uh, the, the paper finds a one year increase in the retirement age increases layoffs by about 10%. And it also reduces hiring by 2%. These clearly aren't like volunteer. I mean, you know, it's hard to tell because this is happening in 2011. And, you know, Italy was in dire financial straits at the time. So maybe lo- some of these layoffs and reduced hirings would would have happened anyway. But um, the paper design seems pretty good to me. Uh, so so I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's something going on there. And that seems like really suboptimal for these firms in terms of like they want to choose who to lay off and what's more productive for them. And they want to and reducing hiring is not like the idea. It's not it's not, it's not a good thing. That means your company isn't growing or or adding new talent or new fresh ideas or or diverse perspectives. And so that's a really big problem there, too, um, on top of like, you know, obviously the, the harms that we've articulated for the workers themselves. And I think one thing that's interesting, too, at the end of this paper is just like the reason why this is so important to think about is that, you know, a lot of OECD countries are coming into the time where like we're where it's it's kind of a danger zone for a lot of these retirement programs or these pension programs that exist at the state or or it's a very few number of large corporations in the United States and what's going to happen if people are forced to put off their retirement is is a big question and it may turn into a youngs versus olds like type type uh, showdown again or it could you know you know breeds hopefully some kind of solidarity towards uh you know more immigrants which is you know Matt's entire book so <laughs> Oof, all right, yeah. Well, I, someday, someday we'll be back to uh, uh, the the endless uh, entitlement wars uh, of the Obama years, and, and we can we can talk about all this. But not today. No, not today. I think let's. Uh, <laughs> we're day. gonna we're, we're gonna wrap it up uh, <laughs> before things get too out of hand. Um, so thanks, uh, thanks for joining us, Jerusalem. Thanks as always to our sponsors, our producer Eric Janikas, and the Weeds will be back on Friday. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting Fundrise.com Fox. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement.